Well, friends, I want us to turn now to God's word and I want us to have him address us about Father's Day. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a different sermon this morning. I don't have three points or anything like that. Um, it's going to be more of a meditation and amusing um, from a key text in scripture. In fact, a text that we've looked at a few times in the short history of our church plant. Uh, but I think it's going to really bless us and help us. The benefit of this text too um, is it's not explicitly related to fathers. I will show you how it is later on. But it's a text that will encourage each of us about who God the Father is. And it's a text that we can all seek to learn from and put into practice. So if you have your scriptures with you, your Bible, um, we read from the ESV translation. And I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 and 7. Just very briefly, the context is very simple. Israel has sinned terribly against God. God is um, rightfully and just angry against them. Uh, and Moses is pleading for God to remember his promises to his people. God says he will and says he will continue to go with them into the promised land. And then right at the end, even after God says that, Moses says, oh, but one more thing. Show me your glory. Show me your glory, your goodness, your essence, your nature. And God says, okay, I will make my goodness pass before you. And then he takes Moses up onto the top of the mountain, puts him in a cleft of a rock and passes before him and proclaims his very glory, his very essence and nature and goodness. So friends, may you hear the holy word of our Lord. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you may bless the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, dads, I want to particularly talk to you um, in this opening illustration and ask you, do you remember that very first moment in the hospital, you know, birthing suite when you held your firstborn child in your arms for the very first time? Do you remember that incredible, <laughs> exhilarating moment? I know I do. I remember holding Evie in my arms after Maddie had gotten her time with her. And finally, after all that waiting, there she is, at first crying and screaming. But me looking down at her with her little blue eyes, seeing her scream and cry and eventually go quiet and eventually look up at me. It's an incredible moment, an exhilarating moment, an unbelievable moment the warmth of their skin, the little look, the, uh, the, the reality that this baby that was invisible is now here and now I'm a parent, I'm involved. And I know there are a few soon-to-be dads listening in and I cannot wait for you to have that first moment. 
But what we must also realize is that at that very moment, when you are holding your child and, and looking into his or her eyes for the very first time, something else is happening. Unbeknownst to us in the exhilaration of the moment, as our child looks up into our eyes, the lights in that room dim. The curtains are drawn and suddenly you find yourself on stage with the spotlight shining down upon you. And in that moment, when you are holding that child for the very first time, you are now on stage in the divine family drama, playing the lead role cast as father. You see, in that moment, unbeknownst to us, we, we think we're just becoming a parent, but really in that moment, we're now on stage playing the role of father to our children, representing the great heavenly father. We're not just, um, we're not just a parent. We're not just an adult. We're not just a supervisor. But in that moment, we are a father, a father. And everything we say or do, who we are and who we aren't, our whole representation of him ultimately represents God the Father to our children. They are the audience looking on at us. What was it like for you to be around your father as a child? How did your father, if you were around your father as a child, how did he act out the part? I'm not concerned so much about what he did, his job, activities, favorite sports, sporting teams, home renovation, discipline, work ethic, etc. But I'm thinking more, what was your father like? Who was he? How did he do all that he did? Was he fun and friendly or distant and cold? Angry and agitated? Was he strict yet loving? Or was he strict and cruel? Was he generous or tight-fisted? Was he kind or cranky? Was he there? Now, this is not a beat up. Um, I don't want to evoke bad memories if you've had a hard time. I don't want us to have cynical thoughts on this Father's Day. But I do want us to reflect not just on what dads do and are called to do, Dads are doers. All the ads are like, get something dad can do. That's all the gift present ideas. But I want us to reflect on who we are as fathers, how we do what we do. The our inner being that shapes and marks us, or in biblical terms, our heart, our heart. I want us to think today of what comes instinctively and naturally to us. What arises out of us in the day-to-day -day moments, in the thick of life, who we really are. You see, behind all the tasks that we're required to do as fathers, we're called to provide and protect. We're called to disciple and discipline. But behind all of this, there's an identity of who we are meant to be. And more to the point, of who we are meant to be like. You see, the idea of father is not a term that we humans have invented. 
we didn't have fatherhood and then go, oh, God's like us. We should call him father. No, the, the, the causality is reverse. We are fathers patterned after the heavenly father. It's not a job that we've created as humans. It's not something we can adapt and mold as we see fit. It's a pre-established identity handed to us. It's a reality handed down from heaven above. You see, God is the playwright. He designed the character father. And then in his stewardship to us, he has stewarded us this role, this identity, this unique part to play in our family dramas. We're on stage and our job is to imitate him, to play our part by being as much like him as possible. And the audience, our children, well, they are watching on. And how we play our role and who we are as father will have an irreversible effect as to how our children see the great heavenly father we represent. So if the lights are dimmed, the curtains are drawn and the spotlight is on you and I, our audience, our children are watching, where do we get our lines from? Where do we get our script from so that we know how to represent the one who's given us and casted us into this role? You see, every good actor and actress studies and researches and gets into the the skin of the character that they're aiming to play. And so we as fathers ought to do the very same thing when it comes to playing our role in the family. And I can think of no better scripture, uh, especially in the Old Testament, to see the Father's heart on display than Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, the passage I just read. Author Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, says about this passage, Who is God? If we could pick only one passage from the Old Testament to answer that question, it would be hard to improve upon Exodus 34. Short of the incant incarnation itself, this is perhaps the high point of divine revelation in all the Bible. You see, in this passage, which we just read, is a moment where God engages in divine self-disclosure. He reveals himself vividly and powerfully to Moses. He reveals not just what he does, but who he is, his very heart his nature, his character. And in this scene, it is God declaring who he is, not just in general, not just in abstract terms, but who he is in relation to his people, to Israel, his child, his son, as he calls them elsewhere in the Old Testament. You see, at various times in the Old Testament, and especially so in the New Testament, God reveals himself as father to his people. And Israel is called his son. And then very much in the New Testament, we are called his son. So God, and then in Jesus Christ, we see it even more clearly. Jesus Christ is the son and God is the father. And so in this passage, we not only see who God is, we see who God is as father. 
And therefore, we also see who we are meant to be like as fathers in relation to those beautiful, little, crazy, psycho children that he has given us. The revelation of the heart of God in this little two-verse summary is not given just to comfort us, although it is a comfort, and though it is there to remind us and help us to know who God is. It's also here that it might be a model, an example for us. It's there for our imitation. Ephesians 5.1 explicitly instructs us, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So if this passage is the high point of divine self-disclosure in the Old Testament, a a picture of true goodness, a picture of God the Father relating to his children, his people, then this is a perfect passage for us fathers on Father's Day. Now, of course, this passage is applicable to all Christians, so all of us ought to listen in, fathers or not. But there is a unique way in which we as fathers are called to embrace this imitation. You see, when you watch the Olympics, there's something we can all learn from the incredible athletes, their skill, their determination, their perseverance, their self-control, their belief. But there's something particular aspiring athletes can learn from watching the Olympics if they ever want to be in the same place that those Olympians are. And so it is for us as fathers. We ought to lean even further into this passage because here we see the model the nature, the example of who we are truly meant to be like in the thick of our days, in the moments of our days. Therefore, if we want to be good fathers, like the good father, then we're at the right passage for us today. Because at the heart of being a father is having the father's heart. I want to say that again. That's my main thing I want us to remember and soak in for the day. At the heart of being a father is having the father's heart. At the heart of being a father is having the father's heart. So I don't really have any points today. We're just going to walk through um, each word basically in that passage. And I just want to slowly go through each attribute and muse upon it. And I want us to immerse ourselves in the character of God the Father so that when we are in the thick of life and there's a parenting situation in the middle of the night, the middle of the day, when we just get home from work, we instinctively begin to think, oh, yeah, the lights are on. Oh, yeah, I'm on stage. The curtains are drawn. The audience is watching. How should I react? Who am I meant to be like? What are my lines? What's my script? What's my character? What's my role? And I want us through meditating and stewing and marinating in this passage, I want our instinctive response to be like him, like him. So without further ado, let us read the passage again, and then we're just going to walk our way through it. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But will who but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we're going to look at seven different elements here. Firstly, the father is merciful. The father is merciful. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Or you could translate it there as the NIV does, compassionate. When you think about this, this is an incredible first word that God chooses to describe himself as. Merciful. Compassionate. Think of the options God has at his disposal that he could have said. The Lord, the Lord, a God holy, a God just, a God righteous, powerful, creative, clever, beautiful, fun, joyful, humorous. I mean, he could have said any number of things. But in response to Israel's high sin, in response to their weakness and their infidelity, the first thing that God reveals as true to his nature and his heart is that he is merciful, compassionate. It's not weakness. That's at the height of attributes, height of virtue. Douglas Stewart in his commentary on Exodus says this about the word merciful. It means that he genuinely cares about humans and holds toward them a tender attitude of concern and mercy. He genuinely cares about us humans and holds toward us a tender attitude of concern and mercy. Often I think that when we think of fatherhood, we don't tend to think of tenderness as the first and you know, most beautiful attribute. But this is how God wants to reveal himself first and foremost to Moses. Tender, compassionate, merciful, sympathizing with us in our frailty, in our frame and in our weakness. This ought to inform our very you know, instinctive response to our children. When they come to you with some childish concern, a school project or it's in the middle of the night, they've done something again. What is our immediate, what's your immediate, you know, instinctive heart reaction? What flows out of your nature in that moment? I know for me, it's not often mercy. <laughs> it's, it's often frustration. It's often, uh, you know, uh, selfishness. Oh, come on, this does not matter, please. But instead, we had to imitate our merciful heavenly father. You know, as I was preparing the sermon this week, uh, it was a hard sermon to prepare because it was just like, it was right there, uh, hounding me in every parenting interaction I had. I had this verse just hovering over me going, you know, convicting me just how quickly I don't obey it. 
as I was writing this sermon, I, I went inside to get some lunch and ooh, there's a nice lamb chop from last night's dinner, put it in the microwave, heat it up, got some sauce, put it with it. I was like, I'm so excited to go and eat this lamb chop and just have a rest from all my hard work. Evie comes in and says, hey, dad, dad, I really need to do this um, thing for school, this project, this trick shot project where I've got to take a video of myself doing a trick shot. Can you come and do it with me? And I was like, my instinctive reaction, and if it wasn't because I was preparing this sermon, I would have said, sorry, honey, no. Uh, and then gone back into the office and just gone back to work. But instead I was like, oh no, a God merciful and gracious. Okay, all right, sure, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so I took my lunch break and we went out and then she said, oh, lamb chop. Hey, can I have can I have a lamb chop? And I was like, oh, um, yeah, yeah, okay. And so I gave her my lamb chop because this verse was just there, just merciful and gracious, which I never would have done. I would have been like, no, it's mine. Go away. Make your own food. Uh, but instead, you know, by God's grace, I was able to do these two things. I was able to come into her world. I was able to give away, you know, something that was precious to me um, because I had this idea of like, what's my instinctive reaction? What's meant to flow out of my heart when I'm with a child? with one of my own children? How can I represent what God the Father is like to my children? Okay, have my lamb chop. Let's do a trick shot. Uh, but, you know, that was one good moment where, you know, this helped me. There were many moments, even just within the next few hours, where I was not merciful and gracious. But that's how I want this passage to act for you and I, dads and, and for all of us, to feed into our souls that our instinctive response, oh, mercy. It was helpful to have the script with me in that moment so I could read the lines and play the character of God more faithfully. It would have been an opportunity I would have missed and I would have potentially misrepresented the father. This extends to scraped knees, failed tests, friendship woes, separation anxiety, bed wedding. In all of these, we have an opportunity to show tenderness and compassion knowing their frame, being like their heavenly father. So number one, the father is merciful. The father is merciful. Secondly, the father is gracious. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Douglas Stewart defines it like this, meaning that he does things for people they do not deserve and goes beyond what might be expected to grant truly kind favor toward people, favor of which they are not necessarily worthy. Going beyond what might be expected, showing favor to unworthy people. You know, friends, how we love God's graciousness to us. Aren't we so glad that God is a God merciful and gracious and that He? Even though he, over, he, he sees our sin, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place and for our sins, to cleanse us of them all for all eternity. And that now we are in a position where he has nothing but love, nothing but kindness, nothing but mercy towards us. Isn't that just the most incredible and amazing reality? Don't we just love to bask in that divine position where he just showers upon us his grace and his kindness? Well, we have this opportunity 
to be just like that to our children. We have this opportunity to have a disposition of grace toward them, showing them love and care even when they do not deserve it, going beyond what they deserve. We're called in Scripture to provide and protect for our children, to disciple and discipline them, but we're also called to go even beyond those elementary things and say and be more. One practical way we can do this, a simple way to have a gracious disposition to your children is to say yes. To say, to have a disposition to say yes rather than no to appropriate requests from our children. I find this very hard. My instinctive response when they ask me, can we play this? Can we do that? Can we go here? Can we do something that will involve me not being able to just relax is no, ah, that's, that's easy. But God, a God merciful and gracious, going beyond what we deserve, going beyond the duty is an opportunity for us to say yes. Hey, dad, can we play a board game? Yeah, we can. We have free time. Hey, dad, can we kick the footy? Yes. Yes, we can kick the footy. Dad, can we watch a movie together? Yes. That's always a yes. Dad, uh, can we have ice cream? That is always a yes if I get to be involved. Um, Grace, we love it, receiving it. Uh, We are called on stage to then imitate that back to our children. And as we do, they will know that God, the Heavenly Father, is a gracious God. So he's a merciful God. He's, he's a, the Father is merciful. The Father is gracious. Thirdly, the Father is slow to anger. Slow to anger. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but the commentators tell me that uh, literally in the Hebrew, it's sort of a poetic phrase here. The word slow to anger means literally long of nose. God defines himself as I have a long nose. Uh, And so I think that's a little bit lost on us. So they just translate it slow to anger. But I think the heart behind what it means is if you compare it to sort of like pigs and warthogs, you know, they're short, stumpy nose. They're, They're always huffing and puffing and grunting quick to have a temper tantrum when they don't get what they want. Whereas God is very, very slow to anger. He's patient. He breathes in and he isn't just snapping out in anger. Dane Ortland, again, in his book, Gentle and Lonely, says, we tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, you know, sort of ready to like a mousetrap. And that divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. And he goes on to explain how divine anger is pent up and built up and built up. That God never needs to be provoked to mercy. He has to be provoked to anger. He doesn't instinctively want to lash out in anger, but it's the multitude of our sins and his justice and righteousness that he holds back his anger for such a long time. That's the picture of God that he wants us to see and represent. But for us, or at least just for me, isn't it all too true that we are ready to snap at any given moment, that we are so quick as dads um, and all of us, 
to just be frustrated, to be irked, to be, you know, just uh, beeping the horn, you know, whatever, saying to the kids, just stop it. All these things. We are provoked easily to anger. And how much harder is it for us? We need to be provoked to love. We need to be provoked to be encouraging and gracious and kind. It's a struggle for me to not be frustrated and moody, to not bring my anxieties into my parenting. And wives, can I encourage you? This is where you can help your husband. Don't rouse on him for being provoked to anger. That's his natural sinful inclinational bent, and that won't help him. Instead, provoke him to be kind and encouraging. Encourage him and and redirect him to to be merciful and kind and compassionate, just like God is. Uh, We we respond much better to encouragement uh, than to nagging. And so it, it provoke us not to anger, but provoke us to be kind and encouraging, slow to anger like our God. So the father is merciful. The father is gracious. The father is slow to anger. Now the father is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. So let those words wash over you again. God, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, is abounding in steadfast love. This word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, and it refers to God's special, covenantal, unbreakable love to his people alone. This is the special, unique, and unending love that God has for his children and that we as fathers and as parents ought to have towards our children. Douglas Stewart again says, it connotes long-term reliable loyalty of one member of a covenant relationship to another. However fickle and unreliable humans may be in their relationship to God, he is nothing of the sort, but can be counted on in every situation and at all times to be completely faithful to his promises for his people. You know, God is not just a loving God, but he is abounding in love. It's not like it's just one of these attributes. This is an overflowing attribute, steadfast, unbreakable, covenantal love. John Piper describes it as a bubbling spring, just this never-ending, you know, water pouring out. He also describes it as like a volcano. Now, the heart of God is like a volcano that burns so hot with love that it blasts the top off the mountain and flows year after year with the lava of love and faithfulness. Sort of a violent description that only John Piper can get away with, but you get the picture. Uh, It's just this white hot love. Can't stop it. And it just engulfs everything in its presence. Love is at the core of who God is. One John, God is love. Love is at the core of who we are meant to be as followers of God, and especially who we are meant to be as fathers. Not just love, not just like, I love you kids because I provide for you, I'm there for you, but abounding in steadfast love overflowing in it so that there's never a moment, never a doubt in our children's minds that we love them particularly. 
that we love them forever, no matter what they will do, that we love them, not depending upon their performance, not depending upon their affection towards us, not depending on how they go or how much they love us, but we just love them because the Father loves us. Do your kids know that? Do they know it in the depth of their being? Perhaps as they're small, it's easier. But it's as they grow up and the the small sins, which had small consequences, well, they're going to become big sins with big consequences. That's going to be when we're going to need to be really on, fathers, to show this type of abounding and steadfast love. This love which doesn't say, because you did this, it's over. The love that says, I made a, I have a covenant with you. I have a promise with you to love you no matter what. To be generous with our love. To give it without expecting or demanding anything in return from our children. That's what steadfast love is. That's what it means to abound in it, to give with no expectation of receiving, no demand. So it can never be withdrawn. It always goes forward. And it's not just abounding in love. The father is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's reliable. He doesn't break his promises. What he says he will do, he will do. And he abounds in that. And we ought to also. And the father is keeping steadfast love for thousands, kind of putting this whole sentence together that God is future thinking. He's not just thinking about Israel right then and there. He's thinking about us in that passage, the generations of those who will follow him. And so our love and our faithfulness and our, you know, when we look at our kids, we ought to look into their eyes and see grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The way we love our kids will have an effect on future generations. And we ought to think like that. We're not just parents to this child right now. We are, you know, grandparents and great-grandparents. We have a gospel heritage and legacy of love to pass on. So the father is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And finally, the father is forgiving. Verse 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We love the forgiveness of God. We are glad recipients of God's forgiveness. Douglas Stewart says that the New Testament doctrine of the forgiveness of sins, on which the promise of eternal life so decidedly depends, flows from the very nature of God. He does not reluctantly forgive sins against himself and others. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character by which he delights in doing so. You see, children like us are born sinners, and therefore we ought not to be surprised by their sin, but expect it, anticipate it, prepare our hearts for it. How often I get angry and frustrated when I'm just trying to relax and serve myself. Why won't these kids just parent themselves? Why won't they just do it and just leave me alone for a little bit? And why won't they just love each other for five minutes and let me just relax? You know, it's not like you know, I'm, I'm painting up a little bit, but that, that's kind of how I feel in my heart. I'm like, hey, just 
go away and leave me be. But instead, what's meant to flow from us is this sense of forgiveness. But forgiveness assumes something. Forgiveness assumes repentance. You see, this verse teaches us that there's no blanket forgiveness. Uh, that we, can, we don't, God doesn't just forgive everyone. He just doesn't love everyone. Everyone's in. No, no. Forgiveness implies repentance. And as fathers, we need to teach our sons and daughters that when they have wronged, they must humble themselves and repent, seeking forgiveness and restoration. We have authority to forgive sins committed against us, but we must teach our children that they must seek forgiveness. There are many times when we absorb sins and we overlook them and we're slow to angry, but we must keep that in the context of teaching them the art of repentance because they need to see their sin. It's selfish and wrong for us to just blanket cover their sins and never rebuke them or correct them because then they'll never know that they've sinned against you and against a holy God. And when there's no forgiveness, that's when bitterness and walls of hostility build up because there's just this unspoken frustration because the debt hasn't been paid. And so we must teach our children to confess their sins. We must call them to account for the sins that they've committed. That's what God is doing in this passage. He said to Moses, you guys have sinned so terribly. I am not going to go with you into the promised land. I will give you the promised land, but I'm not coming. But Moses intercedes and says, Lord, you promise, please forgive your people. And he forgives them and goes with them into the promised land and dwells with them and fills the tabernacle and is amongst them. When we teach our children to forgive, we then need to actually forgive them, to release the debt, to restore the relationship and the fellowship, and to not hold it against them. So that we don't come at them and say, you always do this. How many times do I have to tell you? Those type of things that just come so naturally. But when we forgive, it's actually been set free. And we transmit that same forgetfulness that God has for our sins to our children. And therefore, we protect our relationship. So there's a, a ton of things here. And, you know, dads, I'm sure you're just like, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> That was a lot. It's Sunday morning. I've had a lot of bacon. I'm not really with you, but I'll check it out later. As you put all these traits together, I hope you're seeing that we have a picture of who God is, a, a role, an image to mimic and copy and imitate. We see his very heart, his instinctive nature and character on display. And it's here for us to marinate in it, to ponder upon it so that we would become more like him as we play out our role as paul said in ephesians 5 be imitators of god as beloved children because at the heart of being a father is having the father's heart therefore we are to be merciful gracious slow to anger abounding in steadfast love abounding in faithfulness and forgiving our children, not clearing their guilt, not washing it away, but truly forgiving them and teaching them repentance. You know, I, it's overwhelming for me to read this because I just know how far I fall short. 
This is who I want to be like, though. This is the type of dad I want to be. This is the type of legacy I want to leave. This is the type of image I want to represent to my children. And it happens in the everyday moments. It happens in the thick of life, in the the day by day, week by week, year by year, character and role that we shape and play. It happens when they want to play, when they want to cry, when they want to sin, when they want to fight. I want to be like the father. Yet you're probably thinking about yourself. And I know I have compared myself to this passage and realized that how often I am the father, the father, merciless and graceless, quick to anger and abounding in selfishness, breaking promises and not forgiving, but rather being frustrated and cranky. We're on stage and we're often playing our part poorly, if we're honest. We're on stage and we're often misrepresenting the father to our kids. So what hope do we have? I don't want to leave us with this massive to-do list. Well, Dane Ortland helpfully says, we are being told of God's deepest heart here in Exodus 34, but we are shown that heart in the Galilean carpenter who testified that this was his heart through his life and then proved it when he went to a Roman cross descending to the hell of God-forsakenness in our place. You know, Exodus 34 is an amazing moment of divine self-disclosure that shows who God really is. But we see it enfleshed upon the cross. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Dads, everyone, know this. God the Father is merciful to you. He is gracious to you. He is slow to anger with you. He is abounding in steadfast love for you. He is faithful to you and he is forgiving to you. And he demonstrated that on the cross. And so in your weakness and in your failings, as you misrepresent him on stage, plead with him for forgiveness. Plead with him to airbrush your performance and to make it look better for the sake of your kids than it really is. Plead him to change you and morph you from the inside out to be more and more like him so that my default mode and your default mode is kindness, tenderheartedness, and love. The burden of being a father is huge. I didn't really anticipate this when I held Evie in my hands for the first time. I think I was more excited about having a child than really being aware of my role as father. I was excited about being a parent, but I wasn't really aware that the shoes that I was filling was I was representing the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Father of all to my children. And as I became more and more aware of this incredibly massive role, in some ways, it's become more exhausting, daunting, and unrelenting. I don't know if it's just me, dads, but there's so many times I just want to step off stage and be part of the crowd. But there is grace for us in the midst of our fathering. 
Romans 8.32, which we sang before, says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Dads and all, let us come to him for the strength and power to fulfill our role, to play our part. As As we look upon our children, Look upon yourself and realize that the lights have dimmed, the curtains have drawn, the spotlight is on you. And you have the utmost and unspeakable privilege of representing and playing the lead role in your family, Father. And would it be that he would strengthen you and myself to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to generations and forgiving iniquity would this be who we are would we spur one another onto this and would we rest in this god and find our strength in him let us pray well god our father in heaven hallowed be your name we thank you that you love us with this love and we just admit we need you Would you please work in us? Would you work in our souls as dads to be like this for our kids? And would we rest in you, knowing that you are merciful and kind to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.